Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for a classic episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I think we're doing two episodes today. Are these going to air back to back? That's right. This is a, We've taken the Christmas stocking, and we've just double-stuffed it here. Because mm-hmm. last year we did a two-parter titled, Is Santa a God? And the only way we could figure out how to make it work scheduling-wise to feature it as a vault episode and get it all out before Christmas was to just give you both episodes as one today. Uh, this was one of my favorites we did last year. I remember having a lot of fun with this. Yeah, this, this, was, this, was, one, this was one of my favorite holiday episodes I think we've ever done. It originally published 12-19-2019 and 12-24-2019. Let's, uh, let's head down that chimney. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today, Santa Claus is coming to town. That's right. This is an episode about Santa Claus. It's also an episode about gods and our ideas about gods, our god concepts, and what that that all means. And we are going to get into the question of whether Santa is a god or not. Uh, I do want to just have a couple of quick uh, reminders here as we dive into this one. First of all, uh, yes, this episode is... It has to do with Santa, but if you are uh, tempted to listen to it outside of the holiday season, no worries, because there's going to be a lot of talk that does not directly apply to Santa Claus. Sure. This is an episode about the cognitive science of religion. And secondly, we will be discussing the magic of Santa Claus in this episode. So uh, just keep that in mind, parents, if you're listening with your children. Sure. All right. So... Most of us would not say that Santa Claus is a god, right? I mean, we, we, we don't necessarily – maybe we're not always able to define god in a dictionary definition kind mm-hmm. of way. But you have an intuitive sense of how this word is used. And for some reason, Santa Claus doesn't usually fit into that definition, right? That intuitive definition. Right. Even if you are, let's say – a, a, a child who is a Santa fundamentalist uh-huh. uh, who believes in, you know, very literally in Santa Claus. Uh, even then, I don't think they would necessarily uh, confuse the, the idea of Santa Claus with the idea of, say, the Judeo-Christian deity. Sure. Uh, but on the same hand, and on the same hand, as, as we're going to discuss in this episode, there are a lot of similarities. So first of all, uh, I want to just talk a little bit about Santa Claus, this magical being that factors so heavily into Western holiday traditions, as well as traditions around the world that have been influenced by the notion of the, the great jolly old elf. Mm-hmm. The exact mythology is going to vary, of course, but but here are just some of the often highlighted aspects of the mythos. Hit me. Okay, first of all, Santa is, at, at the very least, extremely long-lived, if not undying, immortal, or eternal. I mean, he's been doing his thing for a long time. That's right. Uh, secondly, uh, Santa is, I would guess you would say, pansophic or all-knowing. Uh, he knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. Uh, I'm not sure he's supposed to know your inner thoughts, but he is privy to an awful lot. I think a lot of conceptions of Santa would even give him, like, inner psychic access. Really? Okay. Yeah. I so, mean, if, if Santa can – well, Santa can at least see what you're doing when other people aren't around to see what you're doing. He sees what you're doing in private, right? Mm, yes. That, that seems like that's verging on – I mean, it's got to be, like, supernatural there. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's so, not like he's just getting reports about your behavior. Right. He definitely has supernatural abilities. It just – it comes down to whether he – 
can see inside your brain or not, if he can see your thoughts sure. uh, at all, if he can anticipate your actions based on that information. Also, uh, he receives mail from all over the world, often through magical means or at least magical variations of the, the postal system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, th- that includes things like letters can find him uh, even, no matter where you mail them. You can mail them at the zoo. You can mail them at home. You can mail them through the chimney, things like that. You know, another thing that's very common about gods is they tend to live in inaccessible places, if not mm-hmm. in a, like, extra-dimensional, uh, completely fundamentally inaccessible place. Even when they live on Earth, they tend to be at the top of a mountain or at the bottom of the ocean or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think the, the mountaintop god is, a, is an excellent example because in the modern sense, what is the top of the world mountain? It is uh, the North Pole. Of course. Which is, uh, which is where Santa Claus is said to reside. And it is an insanely hostile environment. Um, <laughs> fighting off polar bears. Yeah. yeah. And, and he seems to reside there without any outside support aside from the milk and cookies that he collects every year. Mm-hmm. And of course, the big one, Santa can travel around the entire world world and visit every home in a single evening every year. I remember thinking about this as a child and uh, thinking like, well, I don't know. That sounds really difficult, but it's probably not impossible. <laughs> right. It, <laughs> it seemed within the, the stretching of plausibility to me. Right. Like the magic makes sense at first. And then you start thinking about the magic and you're like, wow, this is some potent magic. Uh-huh. And then along the way, you know, you, you introduce some science fiction concepts and you introduce some uh, some elaborate uh, visions of the nature of time. And okay, you can create some versions of it that makes a little bit more sense, perhaps. But at the very least, Santa has amazing abilities to to travel in ways that a mortal human cannot. Of course. And there's there's much more than that that we might add, based uh, not only on beliefs but on films as well that feature Santa Claus. So he has been uh, spotted in the presence of inhu- inhuman beastmen, as we discussed in our Krampus episode. Okay, sometimes appears in the guise of Tim Allen and Goldberg. <laughs> That's true. Uh, also, Hulk Hogan didn't Hulk Hogan play a Santa Claus? Oh, I don't remember that. He, he Goldberg definitely in yeah. the movie Santa Slay, which oh. is you know you can probably guess what it's about. <laughs> uh, uh, also, Santa can communicate with magical deer that also fly and enable him to fly. He can control robots uh, as he has the power over all toys and machines that might be argued to be toys. Uh, this, of course, from Santa Claus versus the Martians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, in that, Santa Claus is also drawn into an interplanetary dispute. Santa associates with known wizards such as Merlin. Uh, if you watch the old uh, Mexican Santa Claus film, uh, we, of course, see him hanging out with Merlin and then dealing uh, with demons, uh, engaging in direct conflict with at least demons who serve the Christian devil, if not the Christian devil himself. Oh, no. Yeah. He straight up fights demons in mm-hmm. the movie. Oh, that devil. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, it's like Gandalf versus the Balrog. It's Santa yeah. versus whatever that demon's name is. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, he, he gets into some serious uh, theological territory in that film. Uh-huh. Uh, he also may or may not play the saxophone when visiting Asian countries, uh, which isn't as remarkable, I guess. But it's a it's an additional wrinkle in the, the the myth of Santa. Now we are obviously not the first people to raise these parallels between the Santa Claus that brings magical delight to children all over the place, and uh, and you know basically gods that are found throughout history all over the world. In fact, I would say it's almost like a, a cliched joke at this point to kind of. Uh, 
uh, point out that Santa Claus and God are in some sense interchangeable uh, to to many children. Yeah, my favorite example of this uh, goes back to the year 2000 and uh, one of uh, our shared favorite shows, The Simpsons. There's the episode where Bart uh, goes in uh, to his bedroom Mm -hmm. and he kneels by his bed and then he begins to pray. And he says, quote, Dear Santa, if you bring me lots of good stuff, I promise not to do anything bad between now and when I wake up. Amen. (laughs) It's the best kind of Simpsons joke because there's a joke in what he says Mm -hmm. between now and when I wake up. But actually, the even funnier part is the very concept of him saying it, that he's praying to Santa in the first place. Yeah. And one of the things I always loved about it is is that it takes me a second to catch it. Yeah. You know, because it's not instantly clear that it's something out of the ordinary. I think I vaguely remember almost doing this at one point as a child, even uh, sort of at least subconsciously getting the idea confused. Uh, You know, praying to Santa is only a few degrees to the left of sending a letter to an entity that can observe your every move. And it's not that different from uh, the idea of praying to this uh, divine entity that you're told about, say, at Sunday school. Yeah. And so for the rest of the episode today, we're going to be focusing on a paper that actually asks the question of, well, in the terms of cognitive science of religion, does Santa Claus actually qualify as a god or not? <laughs> does he match the other things that would be called a god within this uh, this sort of like scientific academic framework? In particular, we're going to be looking at an article by experimental psychologist Justin Barrett, published in the Journal of Cognition and Culture back in 2008. And, and Barrett is an interesting uh, character. He, uh, he wrote a book titled, Why Would Anyone Believe in God? And he himself is a Christian, but he also sees God as a byproduct of our mental architecture. And he, he, he sees this in a way where these two concepts uh, have room to coexist. Yeah, uh, he seems like an interesting figure to me. Like having read a bit about him, I think he's in the spirit of those who would believe that uh, like the existence of God is not in conflict with naturalistic explanations for religion. Yeah. Uh, like, for instance, when he was asked about about this Potential conflict uh, in in a 2007 New York Times article titled Darwin's God, uh, he said the following, quote, Christian theology teaches that people were crafted by God to be in a loving relationship with him and other people. Why wouldn't God then design us in such a way as to find belief in divinity quite natural? Suppose science produces a convincing account for why I think my wife loves me. Should I then stop believing that she does? Uh, which I thought was a nice answer to that question. Yeah, that's interesting. Like the, you can you can put together all kinds of uh, uh, coherent scientific explanations for what the feeling of love is, mm-hmm. why this is an emotion that's generated by the primate brain, what kind of relationship it has to you know the evolutionary pressures that created our bodies and our brains. But at the same time, that doesn't make the love not real. And so applying that to religion, you could say, OK, well, here's a, a list of reasons we think that like evolution, natural selection could have shaped our brains to be geared toward religion. Uh, so you have totally mechanistic, natural type explanations for where religion comes from. And yet you could still, under this theory, potentially believe your religion to be true or multiple religions to be true. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that that uh, that goes along with the way we tend to approach religious concepts on this show, I think, that uh, that we can certainly explain where they come from. They can, we can discuss, uh, you know, how they evolve over time and the different influences uh, wound up in them. But at the same time, we can respect that, that yes, this 
this story, this myth, this idea, this concept can still be very weighty and very important uh, to the individuals that value it. Well, yeah, and and that also, though, gets into another layer of complexity, which is what it actually means to, quote, believe in a religion. Like, can yeah. you believe in a religion? Does that necessarily mean that you accept, say, its story of the creation of the world as literally true right. or that it suggests or that it uh, that its propositions about metaphysics are literally physically real? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and just to, to drive home a fact here, again, parental warning. Santa Claus is not real in the sense that, <laughs> that Santa Claus does not physically exist in the world. He is not actually doing these, these, uh, these great uh, deeds that we attribute to him. Uh, but on the other hand, he is a, an, obviously an important cultural idea. And for my own part, like, you know, I try and, and drive home the importance of mythology and belief alongside uh, the importance of, um, you know, of, of, of you know, fundamental reality, I guess, mm-hmm. and scientific reality uh, when talking about these things with, with my own son. Uh, you know, that currently he's really invested in the idea of Santa, but I am hopefully laying the groundwork that when Santa falls from the uh, the lofty realm of um, of presumed magical reality, he's not going to plummet into the um, hellish depths of lies and inaccuracies. He will instead fall into this realm of mythological uh, um, and this this realm of um, of magical concepts uh, that are valued by human culture. If that makes sense. Well, yeah, Santa Claus is not physically real, but the magic of Santa Claus is absolutely real. Like it's one of the most powerful mind states that I can recall from my entire life is is the anticipation magic of the Christmas season when I was young. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I also remember sort of going through the um, the, the struggle of then uh, realizing, okay, Santa Claus is not objectively real. But then gradually then growing to to realize that, okay, the idea of Santa Claus can still be very important and can still be very real in that sense. In the way – the same way that, you know, one grows to learn that that – uh, fictional characters and uh, and uh, and other stories uh, can be extremely important to us in a way that where they're sometimes even more important than uh, than flesh and blood individuals and uh, in, in very real um, events in the world. Uh, but anyway, I want to get back to uh, Barrett's work again. He's he's working in the realm of, of cognitive science of religion, exploring in his words, quote, why religious thoughts and actions only occupy a small area in the vast landscape of possible belief systems. And that's actually, I think, a fascinating question, right? Like religious beliefs could, in theory, be anything. Mm-hmm. Anything could be a religious belief. Uh, example, my friend Julian believes that a breakfast crunch wrap supreme that he got from Taco Bell in 2017 is the creator of the universe. Mm-hmm. And only by its zesty salvation can he be saved from annihilation. Why is it obvious this is a joke? <laughs> Seriously, like, how come as soon as I said that, you knew that I was kidding? You don't need to go, like, look that up on Google and see if there really is a sincere crunch wrap supreme cult. You just immediately know that people don't believe that sort of thing as a sincere religion. And yet people believe in all kinds of strange things, uh, things that would, of course, seem strange to those who don't share their religious beliefs. So why is it that religious beliefs can and do involve all kinds of strange things and narratives and propositions? And yet there's actually a pretty constrained set of things 
even within that fantastical landscape that would truly seem acceptable as a god or a religious narrative. Like for some reason, thumbs up to the immortal, all-powerful person who reads your thoughts as god, but thumbs down to the fast food item as creator god, right? So like religious beliefs are, are not usually constrained by things like the normal functioning of physics or biology, but they are clearly constrained by something. If they weren't constrained by something, it wouldn't be obvious that the Crunchwrap Supreme God was a joke. Yeah, yeah. I think it is It is fascinating that, yes, okay, world religion involves so many wonderful concepts and so many things that when you're first introduced to them, they seem strange and new and, 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 and uh, you know, perplexing at times. And, and we, we celebrate that on, on this show. And yet at the same time, uh, you know, there's not a tremendous amount of difference between, uh, you know, the details of this religion and the next religion. Well, yeah, there is this funny tension where in, in one sense there's incredible diversity and difference, but in, on the other hand, and that's all constrained within some kind of lane that mm-hmm. we sort of have a sense for. You you might not be able to define exactly what all the parameters are, though uh, Barrett's going to try to do that in a minute. But you, you've got a sense that, like, for some reason, the crunch wrap doesn't work. That's just not a thing people would believe in as God. You just know it automatically. So what do people's actual beliefs in gods seem to have in common? Barrett argues that the cognitive science of religion has actually been pretty successful in identifying the most common features of human religious beliefs, including what kinds of concepts people most often find intuitive as gods. Uh, And I guess we'll get into those in just a minute. But first, uh, we should talk about some of his like basic criteria for for what even constitutes the category. Right. So the the first one, and this is a big one, is that multiple individuals must share a given idea for it to be a genuine culture or religious concept. And this is is kind of a no-brainer, but it's important to note. Uh, He gives this example. If one person believes their lamp can grant wishes and control the weather, that's not a god. That's just one person who has a crazy idea about their lamp. But if a bunch of people share this idea about a given lamp, it might just be be a God concept. Sure. Uh, And I agree that religion has a very strong and possibly necessary social component. And yet I do think there are some interesting counterexamples uh, that we might want to think about, like hermetic mystics who live in isolation. They cut themselves off from the world to develop private, personal, almost secretive relationships with and understandings of God or, or of the gods. And yet I think Barrett is still correct because we don't usually grant these idiosyncratic private mystical practices the status of a religion unless they're supported by a wider structure of belief shared by larger numbers of people. Like the mystical traditions often tend to be a kind of monastic offshoot or branch of larger religions with regular social adherence. Right, right. So, yes, while we may celebrate the... um uh, the ideas of, say, someone like a William Blake, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who who you know certainly had his his own sort of spin on what uh, on, on what God was and and what the you know the the, the cosmology of, uh, of of the universe happened to be, but we're we're probably not going to buy into every detail of it. Right. We're willing to sort of stand a, a foot back and say, like, okay, he he has his own take on this, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm I'm still 
keeping to the canon. You know, this is the extended universe Star Wars, and I'm more of a uh, you know the Star Wars films, right? And and we accept Blake's idiosyncratic ideas as religious because I think they grow out of a larger existing religion. You know, right. they're they're like they're this kind of extended universe, uh, the expanded universe of Christianity. I, I guess uh, one can also say that it helps in these cases if other people do not start flocking to your um, uh, your extended universe concept of religion because then you stand the risk of being a heresy. Yeah. And, and or creating and get, a, a new different religion. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's another thought entirely. It seems to me also that only widely distributed beliefs are likely to have stable contents because one member of the religion tends to mediate any potential like deviation from the orthodoxy by another member of the religion. But private religious beliefs, they seem to me radically unstable. You know, they're liable to change constantly. It's like asking how many editors have access to a given uh, wiki page. Yeah. You know, and if it's a, if it's a Wikipedia page and it's one that is uh, that gets a lot of uh, traffic and has a lot of eyes on it, you know, by and large, you can assume that the information there is probably going to be on the level or if it's or if anything crazy is added, it's going to be taken out pretty quickly. Mm. Uh, You know, the, the, the Inquisition is going to move in on those heretics. Now, if it is a, an off-brand wiki <laughs> and it has like two editors or one editor, uh-huh. uh, then it's up for grabs, right? Right. Yeah. M- maybe one day somebody gets a wild hair. They're like, I'm going to go in and make some major changes. Those changes, they probably stick, right? Nobody comes in to change it back. I mean, there's, there's no controlling influence. Right. And then if it does change, you know, when it does change over time, I think the idea of, a, you know, a, again, a high-profile wiki Wikipedia page or a, a widely accepted God, like the changes are going to occur gradually and they're going to emerge from the culture at large. Yes. Uh, yeah. Having more adherence makes a, an orthodoxy more generally stable. Though, of course, they do still change over time. Oh, yes. It's just mm-hmm. uh, j- there's just r- less potential for sudden radical change, I think. Right. Unless certain individuals have a tremendous amount of power yeah. over it. And then in that case, you know, you have like the ancient Egyptian model where suddenly a ruler decides Actually, it's just the sun disk, and that's what we're doing now. Exactly, but that was one guy, and it didn't stick. Right, you know? yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think ultimately I agree with Barrett that if we're we're going with normal usage, what people usually mean when they talk about a religious belief, it needs to be a distributed belief that's right. held by a, a decent number of people. I'm not sure exactly what the number is, but like private beliefs of a single person or a handful of people, I probably don't count as religions yet. All right, number two, religious concepts and God concepts can spread due to, quote, features of human minds that transcend cultural environmental variations, unquote. And I'm assuming that something like the fear of death and the desire to avoid pain might be such features uh, uh, as an example. Yeah, you're, you're correct about that. I mean, what he means is just that it's obvious that influences on religion can be cultural or social, right? They can come from, you know, just contingent facts about history and what else is going on in the culture and politics and all that. But there, there can be these, what he's arguing is that there are these internal factors as mm-hmm. well. And this is what the cognitive science of religion is about. It's about brains, right? There are some religious beliefs that will be better adapted to survive in the environment of the human primate brain than other beliefs will be, regardless of cultural factors. Like uh, some beliefs just fit like a puzzle piece with our instincts, emotional tendencies, cognitive capacities, and others don't fit quite so well. Uh, I was trying to think of a 
few simple, obvious examples. Here's a Clarkian kind of one. You probably wouldn't find a popular religious belief where you had to remember a name for God that was 18 million syllables <laughs> long, right? Right. Uh, because the cognitive constraints of memory put limits on what types of God beliefs there are. You, you, you wouldn't expect a concept of God to be successful if it just couldn't be remembered. Here's another one. Due to uh, natural features of, of emotion and motivation in human brains, you wouldn't expect to find beliefs in a God that you are required to love and obey and who rewards you for your love and obedience with eternal torture in the hell of coconut crabs. Right. You know, that this just goes counter natural instincts about motivation. Your, your brain doesn't work that way. Yeah, it has to be offering you some Something that 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 fits the the mold for your 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 biological life and the mind that uh, governs your behavior in that biological life. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So I think that that's a pretty standard thing of cognitive science of religion. There are of course going to be extremely powerful cultural factors determining what kind of religious beliefs proliferate, but there are also some probably biological neuroscientific factors that contribute as well. And speaking of biology, the third uh, uh, requirement that Barrett uh, lays out is that. Some features of the human mind are products of human biology as it interacts with the natural world, apart from cultural environmental variations. So maybe the the pain example from above fits here, but there may be better examples. Oh, sure. Yeah, I think the pain thing works great. I mean, this is just saying like our brains are shaped by our evolution. Mm -hmm. Of course they are. Uh, And they're filled with contents from culture, but they still have some innate kind of tendencies that are just like part of your body. That's just how brains usually work. One of them is that we're motivated to seek pleasure and avoid pain. You know, it's like it's really hard to get around that standard way that brains work. All right, so a, a big concept in gods, of course, is that a god doesn't just need to exist within a, within a you know within the minds of a particular set of people. The god needs to be able to travel. It needs to be accepted by new people, uh, you know, across space and time. Yeah, it needs mimetic survival advantages. It needs to be able to spread and and take root in new environments. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to get into uh, uh, Barrett's ideas regarding the five features that a god must have to successfully travel, and uh, this according to uh, the cognitive science of religion, and then we'll eventually get into questions regarding Santa Claus himself. All right, we're back. All right, we're discussing how uh, this paper about whether or not Santa Claus actually counts as a god, as as usually defined by the criteria of the cognitive science of religion. And this psychologist, Justin Barrett, uh, has in this article, he, he lays out five normal criteria that gods really have to have to be successful and be thought of as gods. All right, this first one uh, is going to sound familiar, and that is that gods must be counterintuitive, or more specifically, they have to be minimally counterintuitive. And if this sounds familiar, it's because we did a whole episode on it. Totally. It originally aired in August 2018. It was called The Gods Must Be Counterintuitive. Uh, And we talked about myths and folktales, including religious characters and narratives, with an eye toward the question of what makes one successful and another unsuccessful. In secular narratives, like, why does everybody know the story of Cinderella, but there is no Walt Disney's The Donkey Cabbages? <laughs> uh, we talked about The Donkey Cabbages in this episode. It, it's a fairy tale that 
it just doesn't seem to work as well as Cinderella because it's just crammed with counterintuitive stuff. On the other hand, you could think of tons of mundane, boring stories that don't uh, proliferate as well as Cinderella. But in a in a religious context, or especially an ancient religious context, why does one religion spread far and wide and another one just never take off? Uh, again, we should acknowledge there are going to be hugely important other, you know, non-brain-based factors influencing this, like political and social contingencies. You know, the religion of a powerful, successful empire tends to spread, right? Right. So there's no sense ignoring those factors. Those are obviously very important. But are there factors just in the human animal, in the brain as well? And cognitive science of religion tends to think, yeah, there are probably a few factors in our brains, about our brains, that make some religions more successful than others. And in this episode from 2018, we discussed a line of research positing that a major factor in the success of a narrative or a religion, at least in the pre-modern context, was mnemonic resilience. That means how easily a story is remembered, how easily a story survives in the memory. Uh, most religion for most of history, of course, has been spread not by holy texts or anything, but by word of mouth, right? You've got to spread a religion by telling people about it because most people in history have been illiterate. And so what kinds of things are easier to remember when, when you're trying to spread them around the world? Well, psychologists had already found evidence that people remember lists of items better when that list contains one or two strange items that don't seem to fit with the other items on the list. Oh, yes. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. Like if you're at, at a grocery store and you're, you're spying on what the person in front of you is buying, uh -huh. uh, you're going to remember it if there's something that is completely out of keeping with the rest of it. That, that doesn't assemble in your head into a, like a, a, an easily definable meal. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Like it would seem to suggest uh, by this principle that if you're looking at what somebody has in their cart, you'd remember every item they have in their cart better if it's like mostly normal groceries with a couple of really weird things in there. Yeah, like if someone were buying uh, pie crust, whipped cream, frozen strawberries, you think, oh, they're making strawberry pie, and then you'd forget about it. But if they're buying whipped cream, pie crust, um, and then something else like— A whole fish. A whole fish, yeah. exactly. You'd be like, oh, my God, they're making a fish pie uh -huh. with whipped cream on top and a graham cracker crust. That is crazy. And then you'd be telling everyone you knew about it. Yeah, so at least as far as lists go, lists of things, it seems that it's easier to remember something that's like mostly normal with a couple of weird elements than it is to remember something that's totally bonkers or totally mundane. Um, and so one of the papers we looked at uh, in this episode also applied this principle to the intuitiveness of elements in a story like a like a folktale or a religious narrative. This was by uh, Noren Zion, Atran, Faulkner, and Schaller in Cognitive Science in 2006 called Memory and Mystery, the Cultural Selection of Minimally Counterintuitive Narratives. Uh, and so basically, the short story is this paper found some evidence to support the hypothesis that the kinds of stories people remember best are minimally counterintuitive narratives, not stories that are straightforward and mundane, not stories that are crammed with weird outlandish stuff, but stories in the middle, sort of toward one end, like stories that are mostly straightforward with a small number of strange or fantastical counterintuitive elements. So, for instance, a humanoid elephant is a great concept. An old man who lives in the sky is a great concept, and these yeah. concepts travel uh, reasonably well. Yes. Uh, and just 
just as a tie-in to this older episode, I, I remember one thing we talked about in there. Uh, we talked about a number of papers that Justin Barrett was a co-author of. Mm-hmm. You know, he does a lot in the cognitive science of religion, uh, including one that I, I still remember I thought was very interesting. It was about anthropomorphization in the psychology of religion. And this paper was published in the journal Cognitive Psychology in 1996. And essentially, it was by Barrett and Kyle, and it found that people, quote, spontaneously anthropomorphize God in their reasoning, even if doing so contradicts their stated theological beliefs. So, like, when they don't remember to avoid doing so, if you're not there reminding Mm -hmm. them what their previously stated theological beliefs are, people tend to start thinking of God as, like, a normal human agent with just, like, big supernatural powers, but basically with a a human brain. Yeah, like, I I can definitely relate to this because I— I tend to think when I when I you know think about concepts of a, of a monotheistic uh, deity, I think of uh, you know something more um, uh, surreal or psychedelic. I think of uh, you know like a, some sort of uh, like triangular non physical entity, mm-hmm. or I think of you know something that is uh, you know uh, something where where the you know the god is singular, but also all these other gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I throw a lot of concepts at it, but uh, like, like the ground of being, you know, yeah, that kind of thing, yeah, yeah, stuff like that. But if I'm not Thinking too hard about it, if I'm, say, just like listening to somebody at church talk or I'm reflecting on some, uh, you know, just on the nature of God, I'll fall back into the sky daddy uh, mode where it's like an old bearded man in the sky uh-huh. uh, reaching out his finger to touch the living, uh-huh. uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll have to be like, well, wait, no, 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 that's not what I've been filling my head with. Uh, it's a you know space triangle, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. And so Barrett and Kyle find that this tendency is very common. They say, you know, even if you think of God as like the ground of being or the force or even, you know, to get into a specific religion, like in in specific monotheisms, you might find people with very carefully calibrated theologians type points of view, you know, where they they actually have meticulously formed beliefs about like what God can and can't know and what how the mind of God works and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But like, if you just kind of get them thinking without reminding them that that's what their stated beliefs are, they just sort of start thinking about God like a person with a human brain. Yeah, and this can also be like super irritating if you're you're trying to cultivate an idea of the Almighty as being, say, gender neutral or even being feminine as opposed to masculine, mm-hmm. and then when you're not thinking about it, you fall right back into to it being a you know traditional uh, uh, masculine uh, uh, you know a patriarchal being. Oh yeah, I mean I guess there's that tendency too probably pushing on like specific personality attributes and Mm -hmm. stuff and not just like the anthropomorphization. Though they do say, the authors here say that uh, constantly reminding people about their own stated theological beliefs can help attenuate the anthropomorphization impulse, right? You know, if you're like, hey, remember what you said, you said you believe God was like this, like that'll, that'll obviously will help some cut down on it. But they suggest here that this may indicate a strong tendency to anthropomorphize all agents, no matter what kind of being they are. Dogs become humans, computers become humans, the world spirit becomes a human, everything that appears to have any kind of independent action or is believed to have any kind of independent action basically just becomes a human. Well, that's that's the theory of mind, right? Like it's there so we can understand primarily what our fellow humans are doing, but then it it can act, you know, it can actually be very helpful in trying to figure out what non-human animals are uh, are, are wanting to do. I was reading a little bit about this uh, in terms of veterinary science and how oh, yeah? you know, like there's the older tradition of saying like don't or, or no, it goes beyond veterinary science and science in general, just the study of animals right. and say like there's the idea of like, you know, don't think of it as as a person, don't anthropomorphize it at all. Mm-hmm. Don't 
you know, don't think about its feelings. And then there are some who say, well, actually, you know, we should we should use theory of mind to a, sa- a certain degree, to a safe degree, uh, to figure out what is going on in the, the minds of, of, of an animal. But then if you're anthropomorphizing everything, if you are, uh, in the words of a creative writing a teacher I once had, if you anthropomorphize like a mad god, mm-hmm. uh, then that's where we get into problems. Or and also that's where we end up creating some of the more, uh, you know, inspired concepts in human culture as well. Yeah, totally. Uh, I guess so to bring it back, yes, as Barrett says, according to the cognitive science of religion, it seems true that gods must be in some way counterintuitive, ideally minimally counterintuitive, uh, you know, having some unusual aspects like maybe, say, being invisible and all-powerful. But they don't have to be all-powerful. There are also minor gods that still qualify as gods, right? right. In- invisible and having some kind kind of non-normal powers or attributes. Right. I mean, basically, I I like to play the the game of like, just keep adding counterintuitive aspects to a particular deity Mm -hmm. and decide at which point it's silly and no longer intimidating. Right. Like a... Like a, a, a strange tall man comes out of the shadows and gives me commandments. Okay, that's great. All right, let's add that he has the, the head of a dog. Okay, even better. He, uh, uh-huh. Hybrids are a huge part of religious concept. Now he's got crab claws. Then he has crab claws, <laughs> right. Uh, and then, okay, it's one's a crab claw and one is a hand puppet. Uh-huh. Uh, and so forth. Like every time you add something else to it, it becomes a little bit more ridiculous and a little harder to, to, to take. Uh, and uh, that that seems to be part of the whole yeah, uh, minimally counterintuitive. Yes, uh, but if they've got to at least be counterintuitive because if you say like, this is my buddy Jeff, he's God, <laughs> he doesn't have anything unusual about him. Like there are no, he doesn't have any powers, he's not invisible, he can't fly, he's not omniscient, omnipotent, nothing like that. He's just Jeff. That's not, nobody thinks that's a God. Now, Jeff would probably at least pass the next one. This is number two on Barrett's list. Gods must be intentional agents. Barrett uses the example of two minimally counterintuitive concepts, an invisible potato versus a talking potato. Okay, both minimally counterintuitive, but one works better as a god than another. Yeah, only the latter is viable candidate for godhood because it implies agency. A god must have agency and work as an intentional agent. Now, this concept does make me think about ideas of, say, slumbering gods, dead gods, and mindless gods, at least in fiction, such as, you know, Lovecraft's Azazoth comes to mind. Uh, oh, you, you got me on Azazoth recently, but I looked yeah. it up. It's Azathoth. Azathoth. I'm oh, sorry that, to correct you. Oh, that, that would be, yeah, it would have the Egyptian Thoth uh, um, aspect to it. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, Azathoth or Azazoth, he doesn't care because he he's mindless. <laughs> he doesn't even know his own name. He's just swirling chaos at the middle of the universe, not on himself while, uh, you know, blind monsters play flutes. Uh, but, like, this would be an example of, first of all, it's a god that n- nobody actually worships. It is a fictional deity. Sure. But is it, at least the, it is at least the concept of a deity that is mindless. Yes. Now, I think this is another reason that, uh, like, the Crunchwrap Supreme could not be a viable god. Right. Because right. it's essentially uh, Azathoth, uh, the, the, the mindless uh, being at the center of, cha- of the chaotic universe. Exactly. It's an inanimate object that symbolizes symbolizes primordial chaos. Yeah. Can't talk, has no uh, intentions, isn't going to do much. Right. All right, we're going to jump in here and take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. 
All right, so let's move on to the third uh, uh, requirement. Gods must possess strategic information. So in other words, the gods or God must have some ideas, some advice, or some secret knowledge that can improve your life here on earth. Perhaps it's a set of laws, a revelation that there are no laws, or knowledge about the coming end times, or the God must have privileged knowledge. He knows what you've done, or the nature of your inner thoughts, or what will happen to you in the future. Yes. Now, I think it's very important to note that this does not mean the same thing as like omniscience, Mm -hmm. which would be a omniscience, all knowingness would be a form of strategic information. It'd be like the ultimate form of strategic information. Uh, But uh, omniscience is a property only some gods possess, right? The strategic information idea here just requires that a god knows something valuable or relevant. Uh, For example, the version of God depicted in the Garden of Eden story does not appear to be all-knowing. Like he walks in the garden, he has limited perspective. It is possible to at least temporarily hide from him. And yet he clearly has access to important information that Adam and Eve do not have. Right. Though I also always wondered if he was just kind of like a, a, a you know, sky daddy playing dumb. Uh, but sort of trying to see what his creations are going to say. Hmm. You know, like when you walk in and you're like, all right, who smeared their food on this window? You know who <laughs> smeared the food on the window. But you're, you're asking the question because you want to have a, a civilized discussion about it and, 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 uh, and, and you know, in and, and, and doing so, uh, you know, prevent more food smearage from happening. Sure. Well, I think that's a valid interpretation, too. I think the other one's more straightforward, but it could be either one. Um, uh, so Barrett points out that it's important that this information is relevant to humans in particular, right? Yeah. Quote, suppose a certain minimally counterintuitive agent only knows about Himalayan microinvertebrates. <laughs> Such a being is unlikely to gain traction as a noteworthy entity and rise to the status of God. Uh, you know, and that's specifically because it – this entity does not have any information that is useful in any way relevant to humans. Like they, and, and they don't have to be helpful, right? Gods can be mean. Gods can be bad. Beings with strategic information could be helpful allies or dangerous enemies, as, say, some of the Greek gods often are. Like Poseidon, you know, yeah. he, he wants to wreck your ship and get revenge on you. He's still a god. All right, next we have number four. This is a big one. Gods must be able to act in the human world in detectable ways. Barrett says, quote, an all-seeing, all-knowing statue that does nothing but sees and knows is not worth transmitting. Gods have to do stuff and be known by that stuff or at least to have done something. Otherwise, it's just not a concept that's going to travel. Sure. Or to be likely to potentially do something in the future. Right. Yeah. A a god that has no interaction whatsoever with the world usually isn't going to form a religion. People aren't going to have beliefs about that kind right. of thing. Like, for instance, think about um, UFO religions, right? Mm-hmm. They tend to involve ideas of say, well, okay, the, the aliens came in an ancient time or the aliens are speaking to us now or the aliens will come and save our, our you know dying culture. But if your, your UFO religion says the aliens are out there, they've never come, uh, they've never communicated with us and they never will come, uh, but we worship them as a god. That doesn't make any sense. Why am I inve- what am I getting out of this relationship? Yeah. Now, again, this is one where I would say that none of these rules are things where you can think of no possible exceptions because mm-hmm. like – I can think about – I guess like in the Gnostic religions, there are some types of god that are like very, very removed. You could still say that their actions have some like downstream effects or like very important downstream effects on the world. But there are like some types of gods or godlike type 
concepts that are at, a, at, at least a very distant remove from the right. goings on of the world. But often in those cases, there are like sort of layers below them who do interact more directly. Right. Or in some cases, they're more esoteric variations of a god that is worshipped more popularly in a slightly different form. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to five. Gods must be capable of motivating behaviors that reinforce belief. Yes. Uh, behaviors such as ritual and prayer. Uh, and they need uh, to be reinforcing behaviors. For, for instance, uh, Barrett makes the example uh, that the ritual can't promise to produce eight-foot children because there will be no eight-foot children around then to reinforce this. Um, now, rituals that promise happiness, um, contentment, even financial gain, these at least you can make an argue that, look, here's the proof of the ritual working. Right, yeah. I mean, and it doesn't have to be clear proof. I mean, as long as there could be some kind of ambiguous way of interpreting that the rituals are having an effect, right? Uh, th- then I think that's still okay. But yeah, he, he's saying that like the ritual can't guarantee results that it won't actually deliver. Right. If you say, if you tithe at 80% to my new religion, you will live forever. Like that's that's going to bite you in the butt eventually, and mm-hmm. then your religion's going to fall apart. But it is funny how far out on the limb you can kind of get with this. Like as long as there's some kind of ambiguity where you're not really sure, or maybe you don't see it not working for other people or something, right? Uh, like there, you know, there the prosperity gospel is incredibly popular, but I think that there's enough ambiguity that you don't necessarily know what's going on with everybody else who's trying it. There's enough wiggle room to say like you're not quite doing it right. Right. Uh, it inspires a, a certain level of dishonesty among the people that are practicing it, mm-hmm. and then at the center of it, you generally have an individual that's perpetrating a con job mm-hmm. like it is about the appearance of wealth and then of course they're they're uh, you know in most of these cases they are they're they're leeching money right they are they are financially benefiting from the scenario uh-huh. and then you it's not like you have to carry this out forever you know it's uh, you know con games have a beginning and an end usually right yeah but then of course there are again even if you're only understanding religion in a totally naturalistic way there are all kinds of benefits that religious rituals can deliver. They can deliver like maybe a, you know, strong, tightly bonded communities with people who help mm-hmm. each other. They can deliver a sense of happiness and contentment. All, all kinds of like psychological and social benefits could be perfectly naturalistic outcomes of religious beliefs and practices. Right. So even if, you know, uh, say you know, a prosperity gospel church, uh, which is is, is is you know vilified to a large extent, and for in many cases for good reason, you could. St- still have that kind of a church community mm-hmm. that would have a, a lot of benefits to the members of that community. Uh, likewise, you could have uh, you know, something positive and beneficial sort of emerge out of a more restrictive uh, totalitarian uh, belief system. Like maybe there's some concept within that religion that resonates and works, and then the, the individual's practicing it, run off and, you know, start something new with that that concept that actually works for them. Arguably, an example of this uh, I've, I've heard is, uh, you know, in Scientology. There uh-huh. are members of Scientology uh, or, or former members of Scientology who have claimed that, you know, they, they don't care for the organization or some of the culture there, perhaps, but they like the rituals. They like some of the, the technological um, uh, ideas and uh, some of the practices that are utilized. They see value in them, and they attempt to spin them off into uh, something separate from the the central church of Scientology. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the lower levels of Scientology are are 
almost in some ways indistinguishable from like a self-help program that's basically designed to like give you confidence and motivation to take steps to achieve your goals and that kind of thing. And, you know, with, with stuff like that, you can certainly see how just uh, having a program that's supportive and telling you to move confidently towards the things you want could be perceived as very helpful, could actually be very helpful in producing motivation for that kind of behavior, even if it also implies things about, you know, like bombs from space and aliens in you and ghosts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, as long as all that stuff's minimally uh, counterintuitive. I mean, because that's the <laughs> that thing. That does seem maximally counterintuitive, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I Sometimes, uh, at least, I, I see people criticize. You see this the thing with, with any religion. Uh-huh. Someone is liable, in one religion, they're liable to criticize the other by saying that's crazy right that's wonky how can you believe in that and uh without actually looking at the the details of their own belief system sure and um yeah i mean that's just that's just part of it but yeah it's what you've come to accept as normal Mm -hmm. and this is a thing actually about uh that's come up in in the theory about being counterintuitive you know religions needing counterintuitive elements is that uh, like as you get used to a religion, the elements that used to be counterintuitive become less counter. They become intuitive. Ah, and then you need the next spin on it, right? Yes. You need the mashup. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. We're going to have to uh, go ahead and break right here. This one went long. Yeah, this one went a bit, a little bit long. So we're going to have to bust it into two episodes. Uh, certainly, there's going to be more Santa in the second half than in the first half. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That'll send you where you need to go. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, That really helps us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our discussion of whether or not Santa Claus is technically a god, at least according to the most common criteria used by cognitive science of religion. Uh, Now, we had to break this discussion in two because it went so long, and now we're treating you to the second half of our conversation about gods, our brains, and Santa Claus. We hope you enjoy as we jump right back in. Okay, so we've been talking about these criteria that uh, Justin Barrett raises that you will find common to pretty much all beliefs in gods among you know religions you find in the world, that gods tend to be counterintuitive in some way, often minimally counterintuitive, that they tend to be intentional agents, that they have strategic information, that they in some way act in the world, and that they're capable of motivating behaviors that reinforce belief. Oh, and that's one other thing we should have emphasized, I guess we didn't, is that the most important thing about the behaviors that the 
gods motivate the rituals or whatever is that the the motivated action most important to this uh, system is that it reinforces the original belief itself right, right? yeah because that, that's how it continues it's it has to sustain itself through that yes so I was just thinking to myself okay these these five uh, criteria. Uh, what happens if we apply them to certain fictional entities that either claim to be God or are believed to be a God of some sort within the fiction? Okay. Let's take uh, Gozer the Gazarian, for instance. One of the best. So it's it's a minimally counterintuitive uh, concept. You know, it, it has agency. Sure. It does a lot of stuff. Uh, but does it offer strategic information? I don't know if it offers it. I think it probably has it. Yeah. Uh, I also the, about the the only good example I had of this is that okay it, I mean certainly it has strategic information because it can see into your thoughts and uh-huh. see what mental pictures you are filling your brain with so I think that would count it also has information that the world will be destroyed uh, by itself uh-huh. so that's 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 worth having I guess like is Godzilla a god I mean does Godzilla possess uh, strategic information or well I don't no I think Godzilla is just a big monster right okay but go. Gozer, the Gozerian, uh, comes from another dimension. He's like a god that makes Godzillas, makes marshmallow Godzillas. Exactly. It takes the form of Godzilla, right? Um, Okay. The big one with uh, Gozer, though, does it offer motivating behaviors that reinforce belief? Maybe. I mean, it seems only concerned with the opening of the door that will allow (laughs) it to destroy the world as it destroyed other worlds. I don't know. I think the case is maybe a little weak, but conceivable. I just realized I was calling Gozer a he. I'm not sure Gozer is a he. Gozer might be a she or 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 neither gender. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think Gozer's gender neutral. Okay. Uh, even though it, it does take the form of um, of a feminine figure uh-huh. in the in the movie, and I think, but I think in the original script, it was going to be played by um, Pee Wee Herman, right? Oh wow! I, I, believe I didn't so. know that. Yeah. I say Gozer transcends our puny concepts of gender. Right. Oh, so we talked about Azathoth, Azathoth, uh, Azathoth, however you want to say it earlier. Uh, I think this one fails because it lacks agency, and I'm not sure it actually acts in the human world at all. I think it's supposed to be just an entity out there in the void, and it's just supposed to be frightening and terrifying that it's out there at all. Okay. Um, Sutter Kane from uh, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. I think hmm. he checks off all the boxes easily. All of them. All yeah, of them. okay. He's a, a human that becomes a god, but then he's God. I mean, by the end of the film, there's no questioning it. I gotta watch that again. It's 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 pretty solid. One of my favorites. Okay, here's one we have to discuss, and this is one we talked about in greater detail on a past episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. That was a while back. Yeah, the flying spaghetti monster. Okay, uh, the the pastafarian concept, uh, which granted is kind of a, a, a it is it is a counter religious argument. It is yeah. an idea uh, that is brought up. To, it's kind of a contrary uh, uh, concept, right? Well, it's another one of those that's obviously a joke at the moment you hear it. Right. You, know, you, you don't have to investigate, like, do people seriously believe? I mean, like, <laughs> you, you just know instantly it's a joke. And again, that's a clue that there's, like, there are some kind of intuitive constraints on what gods are supposed to be like. Right. I mean, his, the flying spaghetti monster, I think it, the biggest flaw might be that it is not minimally counterintuitive. It is, it, it has too counterintuitive. It's too yes. counterintuitive. It's like God is a potato. Yeah. Right. 
But on the other hand, I, I do think it checks off a number of the boxes. Uh, you know, his, he has detectable actions, and they seem, but they seem to be limited to the creation of the world mm-hmm. and also the changing of scientific measurements with his noodly appendage. Right. You know, uh, changing radiocarbon dating uh, right, and so right, forth. Right. Well, I mean, I guess another thing is the question of, like, whether people sincerely believe the things you're talking about to meet these criteria or just propose them obviously in jest. Mm -hmm. Because with all these fictional examples, I mean, you're thinking up ideas of where you can create a something that meets all the criteria and yet obviously still is not a legit god found in the world because nobody actually believes it. Right. Nobody actually worships Gozer. Uh, I mean, this flying spaghetti monster is is a, an interesting case, though, because I I think it's probably safe to say that nobody actually worships the the uh, the flying spaghetti monster. No one truly believes in the flying spaghetti monster. Mm-hmm. But at what point does the current uh, concept of the flying spaghetti monster? At what point does it at least partially transcend? At which which point does it get one noodly appendage over the line into godhood? Well, if you go on with a joke long enough, you'll start to want to find meaning in it. Yeah. It always happens. Yeah. I mean, I I mean th- there's something to be said in uh, meme culture with uh, on that count, I believe. I think that's absolutely true. I think it's also true. Watch any uh, irreverent TV show long enough. Eventually mm-hmm. it gets sentimental. No. It's true. I mean, it, people want to start finding meaning in the chaos of humor and satire. Hmm. That's a good point. All right. Well, let's bring it back around to Santa Claus at this point. Um, first, uh, I just want to recap a little bit about Santa. Uh, you know, I, want to go, I don't want to go into a full history of Santa Claus, but it's, <laughs> it's interesting to just remind everyone where the concept came from. Uh, a few years ago, I chatted with Ada Adam C. English, chair of the Department of Christian Studies at Campbell University, about the evolution of Santa. And, uh, is he a Santa scholar? Yes. He is the author of the book, The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus, The True Life and Trials of Nicholas of Myra. Uh, and in this book, he pointed out that the modern Santa Claus bears almost no resemblance to the historic origins of a fourth century Christian bishop. Um, and his continued evolution reveals a great deal about modern culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, interview used to be hosted at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, but uh, now StuffToBlowYourMind.com is... Um, uh, exists only in a very stripped-down form. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to just read a, a few uh, uh, quotes here from uh, the author. Uh, Adam C. English uh, uh, wrote to me and said, quote, First and most obviously, Santa has been scrubbed of any and all religious identity. I think that is something people notice when they see the European Old World St. Nicks, who are dressed like bishops with a mitre, stole, ecclesiastical vestments, a crozier staff, and many times wearing a crucifix or cross on the neck. In contrast, Santa has been domesticated, commercialized, and universalized, or secularized, depending on your viewpoint. The mitre has been softened into a floppy fur-trimmed stocking cap. The vestments have been turned into a red fur suit uh, with white trimming, the stole into the big black belt, and the crozier staff into a large sack of toys. (laughs) Even his name has undergone change. Santa Claus is an Americanization of the Dutch Sinterklaas, which is just St. Nicholas. His other name, Chris Kringle is the Americanization of the German-Austrian uh, Christkindl, or Christchild. Oh. Martin Luther attempted to replace Nicholas as the gift giver with the baby Jesus. The Christmas gifts come from the Christchild. Well, the Chris Kringle, the religious, with Chris Kringle, the religious significance uh, important to Luther has again been lost. Whoa. 
He continues, quote, the first depiction of Nicholas in America by the New York Historical Society showed him as a stern bishop in the European fashion. But within 50 years, he transformed into the magical elf who drives a sleigh pulled by reindeer and drops down chimneys. Um, and, and then also uh, he drove home that there was never a once upon a time pure religious Santa Claus. Christmas has always been a blend of the sacred and the secular, popular and the solemn, commercial and the familial. Um, also, he points out that uh, you know a lot of it also dates back to older beliefs. Uh, he said that uh, in pre-Christian times, the Greeks, they celebrated uh, Linnea. Romans had the Saturnalia in uh, late December as well as the, uh, the Bromalia. Germans hunted. Hunted and feasted at Yuletide. The Irish had Rin Day. So, I mean, you have all these different uh, midwinter festivals, and they all involve a lot of, you know, merriment, feasting, etc. Okay, well, this introduces some difficulty because if we're talking about evaluating whether Santa Claus meets the cognitive science of religion criteria of a god, mm-hmm. what Santa Claus do you go with? Do you go with like, you know, St. Nicholas or do you go with like some kind of, uh, you know, as defined in some traditional work or do you try to, to gather in the great, you know, tapestry of different Santa Claus stuff out there today and 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 consider it all together and and put together a I don't know an amalgam. Yeah, and this is a, a problem that, that Barrett gets into in the paper. Because I'm because really on one hand you could you could really cherry pick from global and historical Santa Claus uh, ideas and concepts and then choose the the descriptions and attributes that best support your case. Right. If you're saying God or you're saying not a God, uh, you could point to evidence to support it. So, but, but, it, but first of all, Barrett just says, okay, at first glance, he thinks Santa meets all five criteria. First of all, Santa is minimally counterintuitive. He's a flying, jolly, old, kind-hearted man. He's like his grandfather Christmas. Also, Santa is an intentional agent. Santa, Santa has a mind. Santa wants to do things. He is not an inanimate carbon rod. Right. Also, he possesses strategic information. He knows if you've been bad or good. He acts in a detectable way. He leaves gifts or even a note in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he motivates reinforcing behaviors. Kids leave out milk and cookies for him. That is the sacred offering that is made to the great elf himself. Uh-huh. Well, I, I mean, and I guess you would hope that uh, his actions encourage children to be good around Christmas. I mean, that's what it's supposed to be. That's right? true. That's the, the whole other uh, aspect of it as well. Uh, but ultimately, Barrett, he's not convinced, is he? No, he insists that Santa ultimately fails at being a god. Okay, now what is his case here? Okay, so on the counterintuitive point, he gets into this this whole like cherry-picking thing that we discussed earlier. He counters that, it, it, that we're not unified enough in our vision of Santa. In some, uh, some belief uh, incarnations or in some media incarnations, we just see him as like a kind old man, uh, while others show him as being this magical being that we've mostly been talking about, right? This idea that he lives forever at the North Pole and flies the air and doesn't obey the laws of physics and time. Uh, And and he says that some films portray him as as being a normal person who just has, quote, special friends, animals, and resources. Now, Barrett makes a distinction that I'm not sure I fully get. I wonder what you thought about this. Barrett makes a distinction between a counterintuitive being, like a a counterintuitive man who has uh, some special qualities versus just like a regular being who uses magic powers. I'm not sure I really understood what the distinction is there. Like if you can use magic powers, that seems counterintuitive to me. Yeah, I don't know. The, The way I was thinking about it when I read it was, okay, he's saying that sometimes Santa Claus is super 
Superman. Sometimes Santa Claus is Batman. Superman has amazing powers that are otherworldly. Okay. Batman is just a normal guy, but he has special um, gadgets and he has special friends. Oh, okay. So like in the the Santa Claus movie, the Mexican Christmas Mm -hmm. movie, um, Santa Claus doesn't have the innate power to teleport. He has the flower to disappear. That's right. Yes. And if he loses the flower to disappear, he can't teleport anymore. He's literally what he's treated by a dog, I think, in that. Yes. (laughs) You know, so, yeah, that's a great example. That film. It's just a great film in general, and I believe played a key role in – we're talking about the, the idea that Santa Claus must travel as a concept. Mm-hmm. Like that film, if I remember correctly, played uh, a very important role in introducing the concept of modern Western Santa Claus to a Mexican audience. Huh. Uh, but yeah, in that, he seems like just a ridiculous old man if he is uh, – if he loses any of his magical items. Okay. I can see this. And he depends on a lot of uh, – cooperation and support uh, to, to really get the job done. Yes. He's got his friend Merlin. He's got all the children who help him. He's mm-hmm. got the the machine with the lips, whatever yeah. is going on there. Yeah, he's more of the a Batman Santa Claus for sure. Absolutely. Whereas in Santa Claus versus the Martians, uh, the other uh, you know, MST3K Rift Santa Claus movie, in that he has powers. He can make toys do his bidding. Yeah, he's Hermes. I mean, yeah. he, <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to the strategic information front. Okay. Um, which, again, at the, at the surface level, it seems like it's he's got it. He knows if you've been bad or good, right? Yeah. But uh, Barrett, again, argues that it comes down to consistency, and it's not consistent enough for Barrett. He's, because does Santa truly know if someone has done or plans to do something morally objectionable? Yeah. Uh, Barrett says that knowing whether a person has been bad or good is not actually strategic information. It's the same kind of judgment another person could easily make. Uh, and what would constitute strategic information is, for example, knowing in advance whether somebody is going to be good or bad. Uh, I'm, again, I'm not sure if I agree with Barrett here. I, I think that knowing whether somebody was bad or good, especially if you know what they did in private mm-hmm. when nobody else was there to see them, that seems like strategic information to me. Like if you could watch what other people did in private without them knowing, would that not provide you with information that could give you a strategic advantage? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's one of those areas of the Santa Claus um, concept where it does seem like a boiled down version of what you see in, in God, right? A, yeah. a, a more limited version. And I think part of this is kids are – generally children are not attributed with tremendous powers of hiding their wrongdoing. Uh-huh. Like generally whatever they're doing bad, it's super obvious because that's what we're getting onto them for. Right. You know? Okay, the next one. Uh, does Santa act in the world in detectable ways? Well, Barrett says that Santa meets this one, but weekly, since the gifts come once a year in a limited manner. Okay. So it's not, you know, he's not bringing you gifts every week or every month even to to, to really, you know, make sure the detection is uh, – uh, it is, a, is, a, is, is obvious, you know? Yeah. And I would say the production of the gifts, as with many of the things that are, say, prayed for, petitioned for in religions with, with things that are definitely recognized as gods, it's similarly ambiguous in terms of the mechanism. Right. You know, you like go to sleep and then the presents are there in the morning. There's a lot of kind of wiggle room to think about what's going on there. Right. And then sometimes Santa, I mean, as we've discussed previously on the show, Santa tends to come if he, if it is, if he is, if it is discussed that Santa Santa might come. He tends to come. Generally, threats of Santa might not come this year because you've been bad. Generally, those threats are not acted upon. But on the other hand, Santa doesn't always bring everything you wanted. 
it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Santa doesn't bring those gifts that are ridiculous or dangerous. Right. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of room to, I don't know, where it's up to the user kind of to infer the amount of detectable behavior that they wish. Right. And then let's get around to motivating, reinforcing behavior. Does Santa Claus do this? Well, we chatted about this a bit in our Krampus episode, uh, actually. Does Santa really work? Does the idea actually make kids behave? And Barrett contends that it does not. He says <laughs> Santa's going to come either way. And again, it's also only going to impact Christmas. Now, this is just what we were talking about. Like, does does the idea that Santa might not bring you any gifts at Christmas, does that have any impact at all on a child's behavior in March? Yeah, I don't know. Because uh, in March, when you're eight, like Christmas is a thousand years away. Yeah, and just think also about like how long a month is to a child compared to how long a month is to an adult. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what you mean by a thousand years away. I mean, every year to to a five-year-old feels like an eternity. Right. Um, But yeah, uh, there was another thing I was thinking about here, which is that the most important behavior for a God belief to reinforce in order to have mimetic resilience, in order to survive and spread, it's got to be belief in the God itself. We mentioned this earlier. Does Santa's motivating power in turn motivate belief in Santa? Or even if it works, is it just uh, to motivate like being well-behaved? Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, does it actually motivate belief in Santa? Do kids... I mean, you'll see, I guess you see a little of that, you know? Uh, well, kind of like like in, uh, you know, an inquisition for a normal religion, but applied to the Santa world. Like, yeah. you've got to believe or you'll get in trouble. Well, I think the, the area in the Santa concept, as, as I experienced it growing up and in the, the current rites and rituals that we maintain— the, the real area of, of like proof, right, mm-hmm. is the is the carrot that has been bitten by the reindeer and the the half consumed plate of cookies and milk. Uh-huh. Like that, that more than the presence is the, the like the fingerprint of God. Right? Explain that. Yeah. Checkmate, atheists. <laughs> Checkmate, Richard Dawkins. <laughs> Anyway, Barrett also points out that a big problem facing Santa is, to go back to uh, some of the origins we've mentioned earlier, is that St. Nicholas is dead. Boo. No, he's not. (laughs) No, no. The connection to the long dead saint is clear, and myths don't really explain it. Uh, He is not the resurrected St. Nicholas. We're never told that's the case. Uh Uh, He's not the ghost of St. Nicholas. He's not Nicholas the White returned uh, after fighting the Balrog. Mm -hmm. He's just, he just also happens to be the mortal man who definitely died in the year 343 CE. Uh, this is something I'm going to come back to in just a minute. But yeah, there there are not very strong, coherent Santa apologetics that are designed to work on adults. Right. Yeah, there's there's no, like, if they explain, well, yes, uh, Santa Claus was once St. Nicholas, and after his death in 343 CE, uh-huh. et cetera, et cetera. No, it's just, uh, like Barrett says, it's like you're into Santa, and then you look him up, and you're like, oh, St. Nicholas, oh, and he's dead. And he says that that takes the the punch out of it. All right, we're going to jump in here and take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. Now, in uh, in discussing all of this, Barrett also provides a humorous chart that compiles his thoughts uh, and his well, his interpretations of, of these five uh, categories, not only on Santa as a possible God, but also Mickey Mouse, the Tooth Fairy, and George Bush. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think this would have been uh, George W. Bush, right? Yeah, I believe so. But uh, for instance, we already went through Santa Claus, but on Mickey Mouse, he gave Mickey a yes for counterintuitive. Yes Talking for, Mouse, yeah. Mm-hmm, yes for intentional agent. Sure. Uh, but then a no on having strategic information. Right. A no on acting in the real world. And a no on motivating and reinforcing behavior. Uh, yeah, I'm with all that. On the Tooth Fairy, Tooth Fairy gets yeses across the board except for possessing strategic information. Hmm. Which, yeah. yeah. Does the Tooth Fairy really know anything you don't? Uh, I mean, maybe knows a little bit more about your dental hygiene than other entities. But doesn't really seem actionable. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, George Bush. George Bush gets yeses across the board except for counterintuitive. So he's an intentional agent. He, at least at the time, possessed uh, strategic information. He acted in the real world, and he motivated reinforcing behaviors, but he was not counterintuitive. Wait, does he motivate reinforcing behaviors? I guess so. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I think so. But, you know, he it was just a human. Right. I mean, yeah, it's true. Any actually existing human walking around on the earth motivates reinforcing behaviors because if you act as if these people don't exist, it will cause problems for you. Uh, I should also point out that if you if you want to actually look up this paper and the full title, which we did not share earlier for reasons that will become obvious, is Why Santa Claus is Not a God. Again, Journal of Cognition and Culture, 2008. If you look it up, he also has a wonderful Venn diagram <laughs> of how all five of these concepts uh, interact in the, the, like the one safe zone where you have candidates for successful gods according uh, to these, uh, these ideas. Now, I would say to be critical of these uh, – criteria we've been discussing, I think you could argue that Santa meets all five criteria, at least in some cases of belief, and Mm -hmm. maybe not in other cases of belief. And yet still, there is no active cult of Santa whatsoever among adults. And this suggests to me that while I think these five criteria are all very good starting places for evaluating God-type agents in people's beliefs, there have got to be some other criteria here that are not really accounted for. I think one major factor playing against belief in Santa Claus as a god is that there is, first of all, a rite of passage in which children become aware of the underlying Christmas gift mechanism. And there are not any significant numbers of adults insisting to other adults that Santa Claus is real and is a god. Like you've got to have a foothold of people starting off insisting that it's real in all cases mm-hmm. and not just, say, in the presence of children, but like two other adults. And they would have to be, you know, trying to make a case, you know. And once you had that, actually, I could see it being surprising how easy something like God belief would pick up because there's nothing as convincing as other people's confidence. Mm. It's like embarrassing how susceptible we are to just sensing confidence in other people and thinking, oh, maybe there's something to that. So do you think that there could come a day where we would say, oh, yeah, when we when we were uh, kids and when we were, you know, younger adults, uh, Santa was just an idea that we uh, we told kids about and only kids believed in it. But now we have all these adults all over the news media and they're just fiercely defending belief in Santa Claus. And I'm afraid to say anything. I don't think you would get that because I don't see that there's a major motivation to start a movement like that. Mm-hmm. And I 
think that the people who tried to start a movement like that, they would not have a major motivation and they would look foolish, at least initially, right. until they you know, got people believing them. So I, I just don't see that as likely to happen. Now, I, I think you could probably propose things that are equally ridiculous, but you can imagine more of a motivation for them to come about. That Maybe you could. I mean, they sound crazy to us now, but if enough people were confidently proclaiming them, say, uh, take a, a major political figure and start saying that they're a god. And mm-hmm. That's sounds ridiculous to us right now, but you just get a number of people loudly, proudly proclaiming that. I think you could get some buy-in. Oh, yeah. I mean, you if you listen to the, the right people, you, you hear that about contemporary political figures to a certain extent. I don't think I've heard anyone say that um, the individual in question is a deity, but I have heard people say, well, if you look at you know the way uh, such and such is written in the Old Testament, yeah. then clearly that makes room for me to you know to, to look over this particular individual's shortcomings, etc. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not too much of an extrapolation to get to the point where you can imagine someone saying, uh, no, this this politician is a god. Well, and the division between a figure of major religious significance and a god themselves is not always as clear as we might want it to be or think it is. Mm-hmm. There's another thing that I think is getting in the way of, of Santa Claus becoming a legitimate god belief among adults, and this may be a weirdly specific nit to pick, uh, but I think it hurts to suggest that there is a physical location on Earth where he resides, and combining that with like modern geoimaging and maps, like it, it would be really hard to contend that Santa Claus is a literal physical being who lives in a toy workshop at the North Pole. Most God beliefs that have survived into the modern technological era have either always been or have had to retreat into uh, intangibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, it would it would be hard to insist today that there are Greek gods that literally inhabit a palace at the top of Mount Olympus. Like you can see pictures of what it looks like up there. Right. Um, they would have to become invisible or start to occupy some non-physical dimension or something like that. Right. Now, as always, when you're talking about, you know, real phenomena and culture, there are exceptions. An exception I can think of is Mount Kailash, for instance. In, in Hinduism, uh, some believe this to be the, the, you know, it's a physical mountain. It's a real mountain. You go there. People make pilgrimages there and they walk around it. Some people believe it to be the home of Lord Shiva and the goddess Parvati. But you're not allowed to climb up on the mountain to see for yourself. And I think this belief would probably also tolerate some non-physical interpretations. And yet, as I, I think you could potentially imagine. Imagine, imagine a world, if you will, in which St. Nicholas is never fully divested from his religious origins. Mm-hmm. And, and, and instead of it being – instead of Santa Claus being this thing that is sometimes brought up about the secular war on Christmas you know, and taking Christ out of Christmas, what if St. Nicholas – on the whole, across uh, you know Western civilization, uh, remains this um, this religious figure who also comes at Christmas and brings toys and lives at the North Pole. And then you have all Santa believing nations agree to not explore the the Arctic because that is where Santa lives. Mm-hmm. And then forging treaties with non Santa believing nations uh, that where they agree, yes, we won't explore the Arctic because we realize that's sacred to you. Then perhaps you could keep. Uh, 
you could keep the 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 the, uh, uh, the, the residence of Santa an article of faith or not. It might not actually work, but <laughs> uh, it's possible. I think I think you'd still have the major problem of like the the generational transfer of the knowledge of the Christmas gift mechanism. Yeah, you know? like the fact that at some point you meet the man behind the curtain and it's mom and dad. I think that has an incredibly powerful demotivating effect on belief. Like, well, you're really going for the throat with that one, Joe. <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't go that far in talking about the magic of Santa. It's weird though because I feel I. Feel oh, more, I'm sorry. Did I do bad? Well, I, it's weird for me because I feel more, I feel less pressure about um, discussing uh, like religious concepts. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, than saying that okay, you know, we have this concept of God, but there's no actual deity that resides in the heaven. Mm-hmm. Like I, I feel better about saying that than to come out and say that uh, Santa Claus is your parents. Well, we already said. <laughs> oh, come on. This I don't know. Not, I'm not saying it makes sense. I'm just saying. Um, that's how it feels. I'm like, oh, that's that's a step too far to say. Not only there is no Santa, and he is me. <laughs> that's that's well, weird. But no, that's exactly. In fact, you're exactly making my point because mm-hmm. it's not just that at some point the, the other kids on the playground start saying, "Oh, you still believe in Santa? Santa isn't real." I mean, that would be one thing if that was happening. You could still maintain belief mm-hmm. even in a hostile atmosphere. People maintain religious beliefs in a hostile atmosphere among non-believers who mm-hmm. challenge their beliefs. Uh, but the fact that there the mechanism is revealed by the by the people pulling the levers. Right. That the the uh, it is me statement is the most powerful moment there. That's where like it can't really survive that moment. Yeah. But sometimes you don't completely have that moment. I don't know. Like some yeah. some parents they don't have like a sit down and say like, all right, here's the here's the truth. So. Um, I think another important I'm thing— I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do something bad. No, no, no. You, you didn't. I'm just saying that that kind of—I I, I felt that—it says more about me as a, as a parent that's mm-hmm. currently maintaining the, um, the magic of Santa and trying to figure out, like, where it goes from here, you know. Uh, but, but I do want to come back to, again, to Santa and godhood. I think it's worth mentioning, first of all, that Santa has encompassed aspects of old gods already. Uh, you have such characters as the Germanic god Voden, uh, the godlike entity of Russia's uh, dead Mores or old man Frost, who, of course, factors into another MST3K rift uh, right. film, uh, Jack Frost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think he's more, there's a, certainly a clear-cut case for Jack Frost being a deity. Uh, since he is a, you know, he's he's, he's you know he's a he's a natural force in, in that is personified. Sure, but then also we have to get into discussing just like how the how concepts of God and gods are going to vary from culture to culture because a lot of this has revolved around very I think Western concepts sure. of an all powerful God, you know, or or even like ancient Greek concepts of like really highly powerful anthropomorphic uh, entities, right? Yeah. Um- I mean, it's something that Barrett mentions in the paper is that these criteria are supposed to apply to all kinds of gods. I mean, so they would apply to, you know, uh, spirit gods that live in the trees and stuff like that mm-hmm. or uh, household gods. And the, like they should apply to all of these categories. But it's clear that at least I think you and I, by our cultural context, are very conditioned when we talk about gods to think about like the monotheistic religions. Right. But but I do wonder if despite what Barrett says, I wonder if some of the household god kind Concepts do kind of fall through the cracks of this a little bit. Hmm. Uh, I, I was thinking particularly about uh, 
uh, about about China here because in China, uh, Santa has really only gained traction there uh, during uh, really only gained traction there in the 1990s. Uh, so you won't find Santa wearing Confucian robes or anything, but apparently you will see him on doors in places often relegated for the gods. Uh, Chinese households with double doors sometimes boast twin images of Santa, a place also reserved for Chinese New Year posters and the traditional uh, Min Xin or door gods hmm. of, uh, of, of Chinese tradition. And, and I think it, this forces us to realize that there's, you know, there's, again, there's God in the monotheistic tradition, and then there are the gods of various non-monotheistic religions. And, and we hardly just mean the pantheons of Hinduism and ancient Greece, but again, these household deities, such as the Chinese domestic gods, like the, the kitchen or stove god. And then, you know, the, there are variations of this in Western traditions as well. Uh, interestingly enough, though, it is uh, sometimes held that the kitchen god uh, in Chinese uh, custom returns to the celestial realm shortly before Lunar New Year in order to report household activities directly to the all-powerful Jade Emperor. Whoa. So um, – Some it, strategic information there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, at, at first it might seem like there's not anything strategic there, but clearly the kitchen god has strategic information that then has uh, important ramifications for the, uh, the, the, the household affected. Well, one thing I was thinking uh, to complicate this is I use the obvious example that seems laughable to us of the Crunchwrap Supreme God. Mm -hmm. But I think there, in fact, are some types of household God type entities that are – they are intentional agents in that they can act and they have like thoughts and stuff like that. But they're also inanimate objects, right? Right. Yeah. Am I I wrong about that? I I believe so, yeah. There are like household appliances that are gods and like (laughs) food items that are gods. But they, they're just imagined to be those inanimate objects with intentional agency. All right. We're going to jump in here and take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. So there's another way to think about Santa in relationship to gods and religion, and that's by focusing on the fact that if he is a god, he's a specific kind of god, right, which is a moralizing god. Like he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. And I think uh, to people who are primarily familiar with only the largest world religions today, you know, you got Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, all that. It probably just seems like moralizing is an inherent part of what a religion is, right? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, especially with the the, the major monotheistic religions. I mean, yeah. that is the the model, right? The big the big sky daddy that is going to be disappointed in you and uh, punish you if you uh, do not behave morally. Totally. Like all those religions have concepts or codes that in some way regulate moral conduct. They encourage one type of behavior over another. So you got the you know supernatural justice in heaven and hell, divine retribution or resolution in the workings of karma, etc. But not all religions are especially moralizing and not all gods are especially concerned with moral behavior. Like if you look at smaller religions practiced all around the world and especially deeper into history, you start to get the picture that many gods and many religions are basically amoral, that that they involve myths and rituals and that the gods don't really care whether or not you are morally good or bad. They care whether you 
say, perform the rituals or not. And of course, this isn't to say that the people practicing these religions are amoral. They, of course, would have ideas about moral conduct just like anybody else would. It's just that the, you know, in these societies, the regulation of morality does not seem to come from the gods or religion. It comes from other sources. In the same way that the amoral god doesn't care if you've been bad or good, uh, we can easily imagine like the tyrannical king who doesn't care if you are a good person or not, but are you um, are you paying your tribute to right. him? Are you obeying the laws that he set out, not because they're moral, but because they uh, reinforce his rule? Right. It's not follow the golden rule or something. It's kneel before Zod. Right. Now, now we mentioned earlier how the Jade Emperor in uh, Chinese uh, traditions and Chinese mythology does seem concerned with what's been happening in your house via intel provided by a household god. But I think what's interesting concerning that, and I don't bring it up to try and like, you know, uh, cast down this idea, but rather to like add maybe a few wrinkles to it. Mm. I think what's interesting is that Chinese customs put a huge emphasis on ancestors. And I think you see this in other models uh, as well from around the world that stress spirits of the dead as entities that have not completely faded away and may be connected to the gods in some way. Uh, I, I guess a true moralizing god in the form we're talking about here is one that has no, shall we say, blood relation to the mortals in question. Zeus, for instance, always seems more king than father, even in dealing with his own demigod offspring. Uh, you know, he's, he's certainly not a moral entity himself. No, I mean, yeah, you look at the Greek gods, they don't seem at all concerned with moral behavior. I mean, you might get little snippets of that here and there. It does not seem to be the main focus of the Greek religion. Right. And then many of them, too, are, of course, more – it's not even – it's limiting to try and even think of them as being immoral or amoral because they are more embodiments of drives and yeah. uh, aspects of uh, the human condition. Yeah, I, I totally. I mean, they serve a they serve a narrative function, right? Just mm-hmm. the way that like the characters in your novel don't necessarily they're not necessarily going to be good people. Like they're they're doing things to serve a narrative function. I think a lot of gods in history are that way. Except you did need to do the rituals, right? Well, like Bacchus, for example. Yeah, you know, like Bacchus. <laughs> I guess you could say Bacchus is amoral, but but even that kind of puts a limit on what Bacchus is. Like Bacchus is more the embodiment of like of just sort of primal instinct and primal drive and desire. Right. Uh, now, of course, whenever you're talking about like a big, complex uh, human phenomenon like religion, there's going to be all kinds of variation. There's no, you know, ge- it's hard to make generalized statements that are always true. But historically, it does appear to a lot of scholars of religion that over time, there was a pretty major shift in the world from amoral religions to moralizing religions. And again, that doesn't mean amoral people. It just means like, you know, God that aren't concerned with moral behavior only with rituals to gods that have moral codes and stuff. And the era of moralizing gods also seems to be linked with like other traits of the religions that bear them. For example, the trend toward moralizing gods seems to be paired with uh, features like omniscience. Like in order for a god to be aware of your moral conduct at all times and punish you even for doing wrong in private, the god needs to be all perceptive. You know, he sees you when you're sleeping and so forth. And so some scholars have actually proposed that 
the emergence of big moralizing gods and big moralizing religions could have had major effects on sort of uh, society and ecology and, and the history of human civilization. Like one hypothesis that's been knocking around for years, uh, I've mainly seen it associated with a book by the Canadian psychologist Dr. Era Noren Zion called Big Gods, How Religion Transformed Cooperation and Conflict. Uh, uh, I might not be fully doing it justice, but the basic idea here is that like big, powerful, moralizing gods made civilization with large settlements and lots of trade and interaction between strangers possible. Uh, I think the basic reasoning is that if people only live in small settlements, it's hard for individuals to get away with bad, dishonest behavior because you quickly get a bad reputation if you, right. you know, everybody around you knows you. Yeah, there's only one person selling bread. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's a small community. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, so they get punished in social ways, you know, by other people. But in a world with big cities and lots of business and interactions between people who are probably never even going to see each other again, it's a lot easier to be a cheat or a thief or whatever and just keep getting away with with it. Thus, the, the need for a belief in an all-seeing judge who holds you accountable, who won't just let you cheat and harm people and then escape into the anonymity made possible by a big society with lots of trade and lots of strangers. Uh, now, as always with this kind of hypothesis, it's important to remember the difference between like telling a plausible story and proving an explanation is correct. You know, I'm all for informed speculation in areas where hard evidence is lacking. That's a lot of fun to do, and we like to we talk about that stuff all the time. But it's also important to remember the difference between that and proof. So it is an interesting hypothesis, but like, is there any way to test its predictions? And I think the answer is sort of. Uh, it's the kind of historical explanation that would be difficult to be sure about. But one study I was looking at uh, found an interesting way to test its consistency with the facts. And this was by using a big historical database called Seshot to check, uh, to check the timelines, basically. On average, based on what we know about history, does evidence for big moralizing gods tend to show up in a region of the world? world directly before big increases in social complexity? Does it look like the emergence of these big moralizing gods is making like big cities and complex trade possible? Uh, so there was a paper published in Nature in 2019 by Harvey Whitehouse et al. Um, and uh, the, the results were interesting. They did not find, in fact, that big moralizing gods created booms in social complexity in a region, but they did find a historical association between the emergence or like our first evidence of big moralizing gods and booms in social complexity in the timeline. It's just that the order was reversed. Quote, our statistical analysis showed that beliefs in supernatural punishment tend to appear only when societies make the transition from simple to complex around the time when the overall population exceeded about a million individuals. So it looks like they found there is an association between, uh, you know, big booms in population and social complexity. But it looks like that the religious changes came about after the transformation or, you know, the formation of big mm. complex societies. I think that's interesting. Well, yeah, it reminds me of our discussions on uh, health theologies in the past. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, the ideas of, as this, uh, this study points out, supernatural punishment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I have frequently, uh, you know, stated my displeasure with, with any health theology model. I, I think that it is largely a supernatural revenge fantasy and a barbaric one in which we 
we uh, commit individuals or groups of people uh, to some sort of fiery torture and rape in the, in the afterlife for things that we see them or we perceive them getting away with in this life or not being properly punished for in this life. So mm-hmm. I could see that very much lining up with this. It's the idea of there are people out there that are getting away with it. Uh, there has to be – they cannot do that. They would not be able to do that in the smaller realm. And here in the larger realm of the city, there still must be some sort of uh, of punishment. And therefore, it becomes necessary to have this imagined punishment in the afterlife. So the moralizing gods with divine retribution are perhaps not something that makes big civilization possible, but something that happens because of the resentments generated in a big civilization. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. I think that's a – an interesting way of looking at it. Again, one is hesitant to to find nice, concise explanations right, for anything yeah. that emerges. And uh, totally, uh, all the caveats we already stated. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm wondering. So, if if they're on the right track, that this historically was the trend. Like, first you get a whole bunch of people together, all trading with strangers and stuff, and then shortly after that, you start to get the moralizing gods who see you when you're sleeping and know when you're awake. Does this have any relevance to Santa? Does it tell us anything <laughs> about the jolly old elf? I mean, maybe in the sense that Santa is a concept that is bestowed on young minds by adult minds. And mm-hmm. so therefore we could be taking the the larger model, boiling it down into a simplified form and giving it to them. So, you know, ultimately I don't know how much I don't, I don't know I don't know to what extent there's really a lot of uh pleasure to be gained for a child imagining the bad kids not getting anything for Christmas. I, I don't particularly I don't remember so. dwelling on that as a kid. <laughs> Maybe that's just you. Some kids do like the idea yeah. of other kids getting punished. Oh, you, can, uh, you can see the delight in their eyes. <laughs> you, never, you never notice this when like the bad kid gets their comeuppance? Well, I don't know. Maybe it depends on the, the environment in which the child is brought up mm-hmm. because I feel like Currently, with my child, I don't I, – I've never heard him bring up the idea of somebody getting away with, with bad behavior. Hmm. You know, like either bad behavior is dealt with by teachers or by another parent that's there. Uh, you know, certainly we live in the age of, of you know, so-called helicopter parents where there's generally – there generally are a number of parents hovering around a playground environment, et cetera. Right. So maybe he just hasn't gotten to the point where there is this realization that, yes, sometimes when you are bad, you absolutely get away with it, at least in this lifetime uh, or at least until Christmas rolls around. Well, that's interesting. But it, it comes back to – I mean, it's it's – the, the flip side of the coin, right, of the, the, the classic theological quandary. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why right. do bad people get away with being bad? Right. Well, if you have the concept of an all-powerful moralizing God, it necessarily invites that question when you start to see flaws in the system. Things right. don't look like they're working. I mean, to come back to, again, to the idea that Santa does tend to come through even for the bad kids. Like, there's going to uh-huh. come a point where you realize, no, my classmate um, uh, Damien was terrible. <laughs> this year. Like, he is awful. Uh-huh. And Santa gave him everything he desired and then some. Something is wrong with this system. It's all for you, Damien. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> exactly. Because I guess the, basically, given a, a complex society, mm-hmm. that's going to happen inevitably, even or perhaps especially with environments where you have like really tyrannical rule in place. Mm-hmm. Take, say, uh, like a North Korea situation where okay. you have like informers in um, – 
uh, like in smaller groups that report back if anybody's speaking, uh, you know, out of line about the regime. Sure. Like even, of course, within a regime like that, you're going to have people that then abuse the already abusive system and find ways to benefit from it. Oh, yeah. So there's always going to be somebody in these systems getting away with it, no matter what, uh, you know, uh, cultural um, institutions and systems are put in place to prevent it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Now, uh, you know, on the subject of, of city gods and moral gods, I can't help but turn my mind back to the work of Julian Jaynes. Oh, boy, yeah. yeah. Author of The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, which we uh, we discussed uh, in a couple of, of older episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I think we more or less recently re-ran those, uh-huh. and, uh, and occasionally it pops up. But um, he spends a fair amount of time pointing to the the structure of ancient cities with their houses of the gods at the center, what he refers to as bicameral architecture, Mm. Uh, each city centering upon steeply rising pyramids topped with god houses, where he says, quote, the king dead is a living god. The king's tomb is the god's house, the beginning of the elaborate god house or temples. And, you know, this gets a little bit into the the idea of the, the, the ancestors remaining alive. Like the mm-hmm. dead king has not died. The the idea of the dead king is the, the form through which uh, one hemisphere of our brain speaks to the other. Right, yeah. That, that was the basis of his whole he, – he's trying to prove his case that like there was this historical transition where like, you know, where the gods were literally talking to people. But it, of course, it wasn't supernatural entities. It was the non-dominant hemisphere of the brain. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's important to note that like in the, the, the purely bicameral scenario here that he was describing, like the god was – would not be reminding you what the rules are. The yeah. God would be telling you what to do. Uh, so he would point to the difference between moralizing and non-moralizing gods as being key to the breakdown of the bicameral mind. Hmm. Oh, for, yeah. For example, he points out that no one is moral among the God-controlled puppets of the Iliad. Good and evil do not exist. But he points out that in the Odyssey, the character uh, Clytemestra is able to resist Aegisthus because her mind is like that of a god. Hmm. So he writes, quote, consciousness and morality are a single development. For without gods, morality based on a consciousness of the consequences of action must tell men what to do. So I, I think the idea here is that there is no Santa Claus in the Iliad. Uh, <laughs> and that I, so, yeah. it would not be necessary uh, for the children of the bicameral mind. Certainly in the Jane's verse, yes. that, that is uh, the case. It is interesting. Uh, now this, is, this is something that is perhaps a, a difference between uh, Santa and various incarnations of the God is that God and gods speak to humans mm. in a way that Santa doesn't really speak to us. I mean, I guess Santa does take the form of a, like there's a Santa's helper at the mall yes. and he directly speaks to you. Uh-huh. And then there is the, the letter writing, etc. But there's no voice of Santa that comes to your mind. Do pretty much all kids, uh, are they told that when they sit on Santa's lap at the mall, this is not the real Santa? This guy works for Santa? I believe so now. Now, I don't know if that used to be the case. Uh, Certainly, if you had like a small, it's kind of like Krampus and and Santa, right? Like, do you tell them it's really the Krampus is coming down from the mountain and that's really St. Nick? Uh, or, or do you let them in on the fact that these are people pretending, embodying these things? Well, I wonder if it's kind of like, you know, the priest of a religion dressing up in garb that indicates the deity itself yeah. and being sort of your your intercessor, like the, the person who intervenes on your behalf for the deity. Uh, I, I have to say, since we began uh, uh, recording the, this, this pair of episodes on Santa, I have introduced and sort of reintroduced my son to both 
the Mexican Santa Claus film and Santa Claus versus the the Martians. Whoa. And that also like brought up the the, the question of like Okay, what is this version of Santa I'm seeing here? This is not the real Santa story because, uh, you know, this doesn't line up with uh, what I've been told. This doesn't line up with what I've been told. So already you're having to – there's another layer of having to say, well, this is an interpretation of what Santa is. And it it made me think back to a film. I don't know if you've seen this titled Santa Claus. The I think it was Santa Claus the Motion Picture. I'm not sure. With John Lithgow in it. No, I haven't seen it. I think Dudley Moore. Okay. May or may not have played an elf. It's been a long time, but it came out at just the right time in my childhood where I still largely believed in Santa Claus. And here was a movie about Santa that even at that point was ridiculous. Uh huh. And I wonder, I remember wondering what the real Santa thought of this film. You know, <laughs> like, did he approve of like, this? Was it blasphemous? <laughs> In a sense, you know, because yeah. like I'm, I'm thinking, well, the reindeer don't fly because they eat a special candy. Mm-hmm. And then humans, John Lithgow wouldn't be able to fly because he ate a special candy cane. Right. Yeah. Uh, How did Dr. Lizardo become Santa Claus? Exactly. So um, I don't know. That doesn't really answer any questions. <laughs> it raises more questions <laughs> about uh, uh, you know, the, the hoops we make our, our children jump through when it comes to our um, our mythical godlike beings. All right. So in the end, Barrett says Santa Claus, not a god. What are you saying, Joe? Uh, yeah, I think not a god, though I think it's not necessarily because I uh, come down the same side as him on all of his main five criteria. I do think those criteria are interesting and worth talking about. I'd say the main things that make Santa Claus not a god are like this other stuff we were talking about. Right. For my money, I'd say, okay, Santa is not a god, mm-hmm. but he contains pieces of a god, and I think you could imagine a world in which he one day becomes a god. Sure. I, I think what it would take was adults insisting continuously, right. like a significant number of adults insisting it's true. Right. And, and then the cultivation of a—like the, the editing and the cultivation of a version of Santa Claus that works for adults as well. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what would ever cause that. I kind of doubt that would ever happen. <laughs> but if it did, then I think you, I think you could be there. Yeah. All right. So obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone about uh, this particular question because a number of you out there have either you grew up with some sort of uh, Santa concept in your household and or you have a Santa concept in your current household or you have uh, an outsider's view of all of this, which, Mm -hmm. of course, would be very helpful. Uh, One thing I'm curious about real quick, how does how when you were growing up, uh, how did your Santa concept interact with your religious beliefs? Right. Oh, yeah. Like, especially if maybe if you weren't a Christian but believed in Santa, like, mm-hmm. how does that fit together? I think, I, you know, I have a feeling that sometimes Santa Claus is in a way kind of like cruelly and intentionally sacrificed in order to uh, drive home the difference between a, a religious a concept like Santa and the religious concepts that are uh, upheld in the household. You know, mm-hmm. not a war on Christmas, but a war on Santa. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let us know. We'd love to hear from everybody. In the meantime, if you want to find other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, well, you can go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. It'll redirect you to um, a listing of episodes, and you can find a listing of episodes more or less just like that anywhere you get podcasts. Um, I don't know. We can't keep up with all these websites, but 
they're out there. You can go, you can subscribe, you can rate, you can review. That'll help out the show. Uh, let's see what else. Um, oh, and if you uh, if you want to, I guess you can follow us on social media. We're on various um, civilization destroying platforms out there, uh, but uh, the only one we're really likely to interact with is the stuff to blow your mind discussion module, which we'll find on the Book of Faces. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank <laughs> you.